This is Rabbi Sharon Brous, Rabbi at Ikar, where we're dedicated to reinvigorating Jewish community, ritual, and learning, all while laying the foundation for a just and loving society. You're listening to Ikar's podcast, where you can hear our sermons from Shabbat and holidays, our teachings, our guest speakers, basically anything we think worth hearing that we can capture and stream, you can listen to right here. The whole Megillah. I mean, literally, the whole Megillah. So thank you so much for being with us. Everybody, you can hear us? Clapping already. We're already getting claps. We didn't even do anything. We didn't even do anything. Um, I don't think she needs an introduction. Her name is Michaela Watkins. No, I'm kidding. Um, it's Sharon Browse here, wrote a book. I'm Michaela Watkins. We're going to have a conversation. It's going to be very child friendly, so don't worry. <laughs> Hopefully, everybody ate. If you had food but no silverware, or silverware but no food, it's like the gift of the Magi. (laughs) So hopefully everybody's been eaten. Okay. So, Sharon. Hi, Michaela. How are you? This is this is lovely. I know. We should do this more often. Yeah, we should (laughs) sit, have a conversation with a few hundred people watching us. Yeah. This is great. Um, Okay, so you wrote this book, The Amen Effect. True or false? (laughs) True. It's true. Do you want to talk about what the actual Amen Effect is? Yes, I do. Okay, you don't have to. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so here's the Amen Effect. Your heart is broken because someone you love has died and you don't want to get out of bed and you don't really want to talk to anybody, but you feel called or compelled to not spend the whole day there, lost in your own mind. And so you do, you show up and you show up around a group of people And instead of them running away from your pain, they see you and they see your broken heart and they let you know that you're not alone. That's the MN effect. Yeah. It doesn't take the pain away. Mm -hmm. It just lets you know that you're not going to have to navigate the darkness alone. That's literally the whole game. And and the, the word comes, as many of you know, or the title comes from a sermon that I gave, um... Ten and a half years ago now, because Melissa actually looked up the date this morning. I call Nidre. Can I just, how many of you were in the room when that sermon? Oh, hi, old friends. So that sermon emerged out of a long journey through the literature, a growing literature around loneliness, and a very deep concern that I had developed as a rabbi and pastor to this community, seeing people come in and talk about their broken hearts and not know who they could turn to to help hold their broken hearts. Mm -hmm. And learning from people like Dr. John Cacioppo that when our hearts are broken, loneliness actually exacerbates that brokenness and it leads to all kinds of bad health outcomes like inflammation and early onset illness and other terrible things that do great harm to our systems. And I just realized after 10 years of building a car at that point 
that we had essentially built this beautiful community to stand at the intersection of the revitalization, reanimation of Jewish life, building beautiful Shabbat experiences and engaging rituals seriously and engaging in Torah study and social justice, the work of dreaming of and then building a more just and loving world. Mm -hmm. But I had never explicitly said to this community that in order to build the beloved community and the revitalized Jewish life that we dream of, out there, we actually have to start by turning toward one another with love in here. Right. And, and that means saying amen to each other's broken hearts. That mm -hmm. means actually seeing each other in pain and not running away, but instead stepping toward precisely at the moment that all of us naturally are inclined to retreat from one another. Actually saying amen to the pain and to the joy and learning how to be present for one another in the way that so many of us have in such beautiful ways over the course of the last many years together since. I mean, it's interesting because this book is, it's eight chapters and I did read it. I, I wasn't asking her what the amen effect is because <laughs> I was hoping she there'd be a clue in there what the book is about. There's a recurring theme about showing up. Yeah. constantly through yeah. the whole thing in different ways. And it takes me back. I remember this time where a friend, a dear friend, had um, a very complicated home birth where the paramedics had to come and take the baby away. Baby's okay. Um, but it was dicey. There was about 10 minutes where the baby was not breathing and a mother just gives birth for 14 hours and they can't get it going, the cord's wrapped, they go, to the, they go to the hospital, and so she doesn't even know what's happening. She, she had this baby, she hasn't slept, she went through hell, and I called because I had a feeling that I would have heard something by now, and she said, sort of in this day is what had happened, and I got up and I got my keys and I got in the car, and I just went there and I thought this is either the worst idea or a, just a bad idea. And so I walked up to the front door not knowing what I was about to walk into. And I remember just stealing myself in front of the door, like you say so much in this book, just show up. And I just thought, that's all I have to do. I just have to walk in there and what happens, what happens. I can take it. If it's their worst day of their lives, I'm here, I can take it. And every part of me wanted to get in my car and bolt. And I, I don't know what came in in that moment that said, you can do this. But I think this book creates a map or a reminder or almost like permission to get in the car and show up. And I, I love that. It's not a question. And that's the other thing. This book, I don't know even know if it's about questions. This book has a chapter that is going to evoke a story. The whole time I was reading, I was like, oh, this reminds me of that. This reminds, yes. Yes, that reminds me of this. And I think for each person who reads this book, they're going to have a totally different experience. Yeah, yeah. I, first of all, I love, thank you for sharing that story. And I'm so glad that 
that baby is okay. And, um, I, you know, I, I just want to like crowdsource this for a moment. What are the reasons that we don't get in the car and go over in a moment of crisis like that? I mean, there are really good reasons why not to go. And I just wonder if people can share what, what, what would lead one to make a different choice than Michaela made that night? Why don't we show up in these moments of crisis and grief and heartache? So just like, just any, any ideas here, Dodi? We don't want to intrude, right? We feel like someone might be having private grief and then we're there and is that more about our need or their need? And so it feels uncomfortable. Okay, that's great. Did you have, you're going to say the same thing. Okay, what, what are the reasons Jeremy? don't we show up? Jeremy? We don't know what to say. Okay, we feel like we don't, we don't have the right words. And by the way, I don't know if Gail and Colin are here tonight. Um, at, we, set, we sent out last year Colin's book to everybody at the community. So I really hope that you all read it. And if you haven't, you must buy this book and read it called Finding the Words. But he describes, um, Colin describes that after their terrible loss, that so many people said to him, like, there are no words. And he says, like, as a bereaved parent, find the words, because there are words, find them. And, um, and he describes, and I actually, I'm so moved by this, I shared it in, in my book too, this one terrible moment that some of you might remember from his book, in which it was right in the immediate aftermath of, their, of the um, tragedy that struck their family, and one doctor, one doctor had the wherewithal in the middle of the night, in the middle of the hellscape of this tragedy, to pull Gail and Colin into the room and say, tell me about Ruby and Hart. Tell me about your children. And that simple request, that simple question, he said, was transformative for him. So we're scared because we don't think that we know the right words to say. And by the way, we can say the wrong words but the fear of not saying the right words keeps us away. And Colin would say to us, and I think it's okay for me to share, you know, share the, the Torah of his book, which is, don't let that keep you away. Come anyway and, st- and say, like, I'm here with love. I don't even know what the words are, but I'm here and I love you. Tell me about your children, right? So and, that, and there's like a softening in a person when you say the name of their loved one who died. Yes. It's not, yes. we think that they're going to look at us and go, why did you have to remind me? Like, as if they right. weren't thinking about yeah. that person all the time. It's, but I, there is, you're not reminding them. They're there all the time. So I've, I really learned this lesson from my dear friend Mindy, um, who had suffered a lot of loss in her life. And after one of the tragic losses in our community, the family was here on Shabbat the first uh, a couple days after the loss. And of course, there was this, many of you were in the room this day after Giddy died. And he was a small, beautiful child. And he, we marked his fifth birthday during Shiva. And it was horrible. And they were here on that Shabbat, and I write about it in the, um, I write about this in the book because it was also Nico's bar mitzvah, and we had this crazy tension: like, can we celebrate Nico and also honor the Zilbersteins? And um, and we 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 had to like stretch our hearts as much as we could to hold all of that pain 
and also still find joy. And it's, by the way, I was thinking about it tonight as we were having this beautiful, joyous davening tonight. And I was thinking, how are we able to reach this much joy when we're all heartbroken right now? When like everything's falling apart right now and there's so much pain. And then in this room, there was so much joy. And I like tonight, and I remember, I'm like thrust back in time to, to Jesse and Amit standing over here and Nico in a chair right here being lifted up in a chair and realizing that I literally thought, are the walls of this room gonna collapse on us because there's too much pain and too much joy in the room at once, but the, the walls didn't collapse. And in fact, and in fact, our hearts didn't collapse, they expanded, right? Like we made room to hold the reality that life is sometimes incredibly brutal and terrible and sad and also incredibly beautiful and sometimes at the very same time. Mm -hmm. And so that like how expansive does that make us? So, but, that, but after that Shabbat, Jessie said to me she was coming back the next week. And so I called my friend Mindy and I asked her like, what do I do? They're gonna come back. Do I talk about Giddy again? And then, and then what do I do the week after that? And what do I do the week after that? And Mindy said to me, you say his name every single time you see them for the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. You say Jordan's name, you say Giddy's name, you say Ruby and Hart's name, because the, you're not gonna trigger the bereaved. They're always holding the loss. And this only means you're not gonna have to hold this loss alone. Mm -hmm. And that was an incredible Torah for me, which she learned from her own loss, that people are so scared. Like, I don't want to remind you of the worst thing that ever happened. But as she said, I'm always thinking about the worst thing that ever happened. I just feel like I'm thinking about it alone. But when you say, how are you holding memory today? What are you thinking today? How, like, have you had any memories lately? I, I was just thinking about Charlie the other day. What it does is it says to the bereaved, you're not in this alone. I'm right, right here by your side. And that, that is the amen effect, mm -hmm. right? Just knowing that in the worst dark night of the soul, you're not alone. I'm right here. When, when I was a kid, my dad, when I went to temple before the big hiatus, then came back to Sharon. Um, <clears throat> but when I was a kid, my dad used to belt out, you know, amen, like in the, <clears throat> in the, in the temple. And, I, and as a kid, I was like, yeah, we, we get it, dad. You know the words. You know the words. Calm down. But I, I, I think maybe that's what he was doing. And now I got to ask him. But well, amen. I mean, just... Like, the, there's something so wonderful about the way that the rabbis understand this word, amen, mm -hmm. that it's, it is imbued with such holiness because it's fundamentally relational. It's someone else's blessing that you're giving a nod to, right? Or someone else's pain that you're acknowledging. So it's not, we think often about faith as a kind of vertical, that faith is about your relationship with God, but saying amen to someone is a horizontal, it's me acknowledging that there's someone in the room who's having an experience that I can affirm whether that experience is one of joy or one of sorrow or one of confusion or one of I'm just lost or I'm new here and does anyone even know that I'm here or it's my first time back after my divorce and does everyone hate me? Like, I see you. Mm -hmm. I see you and I'm just glad, I, I get that you're, I'm glad we're in community together. Yeah. So your dad, your dad was right. Like mm -hmm. that is in some ways the most powerful word we can say. And in fact, amen 
the rabbis say amen comes from emunah, that the origin of amen is from the, uh, the, the Hebrew word for faith. But I think often it's, it's not necessarily an expression of faith in God so much as it's an expression of faith in one another. Mm-hmm. Like, I trust that you see me and that I see you. And can I talk about the Mishnah? Yeah. Because, okay, because I want to say that this book is really a love story. Um, and it's, it's like a multifaceted love story because, um, because on one hand, it is so clearly a love story to all, between me and all of you. I hope you feel that when you read it. Not in a creepy way, in like a really beautiful way, I hope. But it's like we just built this amazing community together. And the Torah of our lives, I felt, needed to be honored in the pages of something that would outlive me and us. And so I just, I felt like it deserved to be written down. The way, like the lessons that I have learned from this beautiful community as we've cared for each other through some really difficult and really beautiful moments. It's a love letter for all of us. And it's a love letter between me and this Mishnah that Rabbi Jensen mentioned tonight. So I'll just say, I just want to say a word about this because I know that there are a few people here who are new and you're like, huh, what is that? So I'm just going to describe it and forgive me for the 10,000th time if you're, if you're an old timer here. But what the, 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 the Mishnah describes this ritual. So Mishnah, ancient Jewish compendium of law, the oral Torah, what it describes is this kind of obscure ritual that would take place when Jews would come from all around the land in ancient times and even from the diaspora. And they would ascend to Jerusalem, the city on a hill, and they would go in the mikvah and have a beautiful feast and get ready in this big celebration for the pilgrimage. And then they would ascend the steps of the Temple Mount, the holiest place in the holiest city. And they would enter under this giant entryway and they would turn to the right and they would circle around the perimeter of this courtyard, all the way around the courtyard, and then they'd basically leave just where they had entered, and that was it. And I'm gonna show, I'm I'm not being funny, I'm gonna show you how it works because we're gonna, can we show them how to do do this? Yeah, we're gonna, Okay, we're okay. gonna do th- we're gonna do this. Not right okay. now. Wait, so not I yet. Not yet. come in we're, through the door. Michaela's gonna do it now. We're and gonna... I and I walk around, and this is me, and then I leave out the door. Yeah, but yeah, except for somebody, Misha Erodavar, somebody to whom something awful had happened, and that person still goes up to Jerusalem, and that person still goes up the steps, but they go through the same entryway, but they turn to the left instead of the right, and so you have to imagine now. Hundreds of thousands of people walking in this direction. Hundreds of thousands of people walking with Michaela this way, and one person going this way. Someone with a broken heart. A broken heart. So yeah. they were going to go this way. And yeah. then... Yes. And then the sacred magic happens because the people who are going this way are called to stop and to see the person who's going in the other direction, to look in their eyes... And then to ask them a simple question, Malach, what happened to you? What is your story? Tell me about your broken heart. And then I would tell you that I, I got um, a terrible prognosis about a loved one. Yes. You would tell me that your loved one is sick. Mm-hmm. You would tell me that your loved one just died. You would tell me that you yourself might be sick. You would tell me you're worried about your kid. You would tell me that you feel like you just, you're falling apart. 
And then I would bless you. I would hear you and I would bless you. I would say, may the one who dwells in this place comfort you in your moment of distress. May you make it through this time of heartache and find a way to heal. May you be blessed with, re with resiliency as you fight this illness. Whatever the blessing is that you need in that moment. And that sacred interaction is the heart of this ancient practice. And that sacred interaction, I realized over the years, was completely counter to everybody's instinct. All the players in this game do not want to have that interaction because the brokenhearted person does not want to be in that room full of people and have everybody see them and see their, what was that line from, Paul, from the Paul Simon song? Losing, losing love is like a window to your heart. Everybody knows you've been thrown, thrown what? Blown apart. Everybody knows you've been blown apart, right? Like that level of vulnerability, we don't like that. We don't like being that vulnerable. And the people who are going this way are having their peak, you know, spiritual moment of their lives. Like it's like Hillel and Jenny are singing alive and we're like off the ground and out of the corner of our eye, we catch a glimpse of somebody who's in pain and we have to step away from the joy and go over and be like, hey, tell me about your broken heart. It's so counter-instinctual. And yet that's exactly what we're called to do because the rabbis understood something about the human condition, which is sometimes our instincts get the worst of us, not the best of us. Mm -hmm. And so that's why we need each other to remind each other that we can do better, that we have to do better. That's why we need ritual to remind us, to build the, the, the muscle memory for actually taking care of each other when we can and for actually placing our broken hearts in the context of a community of care when we, when we need it most. And even just asking somebody in, in a very real way, how are you, can change a depression. If somebody is feeling that lonely, I remember um, when you spoke uh, about loneliness to our, our Surgeon General, and he said something about even if you're at work and you're going through an incredible depression and incredible, and somebody, another coworker just comes up and looks you in the eye and says, how are you? It can actually, actually move the needle on a depression. Mm. So uh, that idea of like, Dodi was saying how we're afraid to in, intrude um, is such a funny, weird instinct that we must have been taught at some point. Yeah. And yeah. And it's so counterintuitive to a healthy body, you know. And healthy and healthy community, right? Mm -hmm. And and I just I want to add one more to what Dodie and Jeremy shared, which is I think we often don't show up and knock on the door like like you did because we're afraid of the pain. Because we think that heartache is contagious. We think divorce is contagious. We think cancer is contagious. Like, not really, but yeah, we do. Like, we think that if we, if we really look that kind of darkness in the eye, then we will have to contemplate the fact that we are also vulnerable to the same kind of heartache affecting us as well. And that makes us pull away from each other. But the fact is, like, we're all vulnerable anyway. I mean, that's the whole point of Yom Kippur, my favorite day of the year. We could all be dead tomorrow. So if we take that message seriously, Yay. 
right? If we take that message seriously, then, then it changes everything, right? We don't need to pull away from each other in those moments because we understand that vulnerability. And in fact, engaging people who are feeling the depths of that kind of sorrow actually gives us meaning while we are here instead of us pulling away from it and pretending we're going to live forever and engaging in this kind of death denial and then being just completely shocked when, when, when death comes to us as it will to all of us, as we have said many, many times in this place. And so have an extra cookie. Exactly. Um, <laughs> you know, you said something in your book. I wrote down so many quotes from your book. Because, on a napkin. On a napkin. Because I could have given you I was in a paper. bar. No, um, <laughs> reading your book and crying. Uh, no, but I, I wrote it down on a napkin because I wrote it down in my phone, and that would have been uh, contraband tonight. So... Uh, you wrote, it is rooted in narcissism and fear, the it hurts me to see you suffer. Yeah. Yeah. I, can can we you talk, talk about, about that? that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love that quote. And some yeah. of them I wrote, I don't even know why I wrote them. I and you're going to have to remind me why I loved it too. But um, that one I well, loved so much. Right. Because, okay, so I actually think that this is, I, I think that this is a really uh, toxic part of our culture that we think that our job is to cheer each other up and to fix what's broken. And, um, and so on one hand, we're completely averse to engaging other people's pain seriously. On the other hand, we'll walk into the pain so that we can fix it and make it better. And in fact, several of you in this room have told me, speaking of saying the wrong thing, about times when you were in great pain and the wrong thing was, you really need to cheer up, right? Come on, let's go out. Let's go out and let's go have some fun. Now, by the way, sometimes it's the right thing to take your friends out and have fun, and sometimes it's okay to cheer your friends up, but generally not in the immediate aftermath of a tragic death, like for example. So the reason that we do that, I think, is because we, we feel destabilized by each other's pain. We don't want to see our friend in sorrow we want to see our friend being okay. We, want, we love resiliency in our culture. We want to see that you can move through anything, survive anything. But the fact is we also need to grieve when we experience loss. And in order to grieve, we need to have people around us who aren't afraid to see the depths of the grief and not run away. And so one of our beloveds in our community told me, um, and I named one of the chapters after this piece of wisdom that he shared, but Christopher told me that, um, that after Charlie died, that a lot of people came to him and they're like, come on, it's going to be okay. And he's like, I don't want you to fix me. I just want you to be with me. I want you to bear witness to my pain, bear witness, just sit with me. And I think all the time about that um, about the Midrash that comes the, from the, the beginning of the book of Genesis, um, which I write about in chapter, in chapter two, where in the beginning, uh, Adam HaRishon, the first person is created alone, and, uh, and God sees this, and God says it's not good for a person to be alone. There's so much that's been good so far in creation. At the end of every single day, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good. And then all of a sudden, it's not good for a person to be fundamentally alone. And no, that doesn't mean you have to get married, folks. That doesn't mean you have to be in a romantic partnership. That means you have to have somebody 
who can see you and who you can also see. And if that person's your romantic partner, God bless you, but it doesn't have to be. So just to be clear about that. But God says it's not okay to walk through life alone. We are fundamentally relational beings. Now we know that biologically, psychologically, sociologically, and spiritually, we are fundamentally relational beings. And so God creates Eve so that Adam doesn't have to walk through life alone. And the Midrash says that at the end of the first day of their lives, the sixth day of creation, the sun started to set. It started to, it started to become night. But Adam and Eve had never experienced night before. They had never experienced darkness before. And I'm just going to invite you to think for a moment about the first time you experienced darkness, like really experienced darkness in your life. When Adam experienced darkness for the first time, he completely fell apart. And he starts to weep and wail and cry and scream. And, And he feels like it's his fault And he feels, he catastrophizes, and he feels like the whole world is going to end. And Eve, who was created in the world in order to, to, to help him by sitting opposite him, comes and sits opposite him and holds him and weeps with him all night long. And then the dawn arises. And so what the, what I think the rabbis are trying to say to us is that the most important question that we can ask ourselves in life is, When the darkness comes, because the darkness comes, who will weep with you through the night? Who's going to be by your side in in those most excruciating hours? So that, that I think about all the time. Who will bear witness with you? And Eve doesn't try to convince him that it's okay. She's freaking out also. She's also never experienced darkness before. And there are a number of stories that I share in there about like rabbinic stories and stories from this community about moments that have reinforced that sense that our job is not actually to to yank each other up and make everything okay. Our job is just to sit together as long as we need to until we're ready to emerge, if we're ready to emerge. You say, it just, okay, so I know I keep saying anecdotes, but this is how I relate, and maybe you're the same, but, so forgive me, but one time my cat died and it was very, 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 very tragic because this was like my alamkara. And I was not, I was inconsolable for about three years. But when it happened, my friend Krista said, I'm coming over. And not everybody wants to mourn with somebody. Okay, let's just be honest. I'm like a tiger. I have to go into the jungle alone and have all my big feelings, and then come out and be like, will you hold me? And she came over and climbed into bed with me, and I just sat there so stoic, because I don't mourn with other people. And then I, I was waiting for her to go. It's taking forever. And finally she did, and then I just wailed by myself. But you say in your book, we don't need to save someone just to accompany them. Mm. And I, I, I am reminded of in your book, you tell the story about when you were a um, budding rabbi and you showed up and misfired one time and the advice that your, your professor or your rabbi gave you, I don't, I don't recall. 
There's so many misfires in this book. I actually don't even know which one you're it's talking about. It's the one. Um, <laughs> she's very humble in this book. It's a, really. She's it's, honest. It's, it's, about, uh, it's a very honest book. But you talked about how a woman came up and said, uh, oh, yeah. I want to go dancing, but my yeah. mother just Okay, died. so so this story, I don't. There, I hope that there's some stuff in here that you haven't heard me share over the last 20 years. I know some of you are like, oh, I heard that one in 20, 2007. Um, and then again in 2013, because she thought there weren't the same people in the room. Um, I know, I know who you are. Um, so, so th this was a, this was an incredibly impactful experience. I was a brand new rabbi, as Michaela said. It was Friday night service, incredibly joyous. I was at B'nai Jeshurun in New York City, Upper West Side, and it was like it was like tonight. I mean, the spirit was like tonight, but different. And uh, we were all singing, and people were dancing, dancing around. And this woman came up to me, and in the midst of all of it, because the rabbis were like right in the middle of the room, and she came over and she said, Rabbi, um, I don't know what to do because my mother died this week, and I really want to dance. Am I allowed to dance? And I was a brand new baby rabbi, and I, and I start to run the calculations in my head, the halachic calculations, and I think, Okay, first of all, she shouldn't even be in the room right now because if your mother died that week, she shouldn't come in until after L'Chadodi, and this was L'Chadodi, but I can't ask her to leave because that would be shaming a person, and you can't shame a person, especially not when they're a mourner. So I can't ask her to leave, so she's here, and she really shouldn't be dancing because you don't really dance during the year of grief, but also grieving is suspended on Shabbat, so maybe she could dance. And I literally, I'm like, I can't get this wrong. I don't want to get this wrong. And so I did the only reasonable thing that I could do, which is I was like, you should go ask Roly and my, my senior rabbi. <laughs> and, so, and so I literally, I'm like, I can't, I, I almost fell apart from like the, you know, if, she, if only she could see what was happening in my brain. And so I saw her walk over and she asked Roly, this, you know, more experienced rabbi that was standing right to my side. And I couldn't hear what they were saying, but I saw her lean up like this and she said something in his ear. And then all I saw was he just took, he just took his giant tallit that he was wearing and he just wrapped her up in this beautiful hug and she wept. And I just thought, oh, she actually wasn't asking me a halachic question about whether or not she could dance. She just wanted to tell someone who should care that her mother had just died. And, and I totally miss it. I missed it. I just missed the moment. And I realized at that point, like, a lot of times when people come asking questions, it's like not about if the countertop is meat or dairy. It's about if this marriage is going to work out or not. You know what I'm saying? And so, and so like I, I it was really important for me and I'm, it was so humiliating and so, I'm so grateful because I, I started to learn that very often what we actually need, in fact, Melissa and I share this sense that like the the single greatest and most universal human need, are you ready, is actually for someone to see us. We just need to be seen. And that is true if you live here, you know, on the west side of LA, that's true if you're the women in Liberia that I went to meet on the AJWS trip who literally, who like ended the civil war after 13 years of horror and brutality and human cruelty. And we went there, this group of Jews, to, from AJWS to go to go sit with them and hear their stories. And at one point, the, like one of the women who, the, like this hero, this hero who ended a war with her own body, she stood in between the militia and the government. She's like, no more. You're not going to fight this war on women's bodies anymore. 
And she just, she started, like, she looked at us and she cried. And she said, like, this group of Jews from New York and Chicago and L.A., she's like, I can't believe you came here just to see us, Mm. just to hear our stories. And this is the universal human need. And the rabbis, the ancient rabbis, they got this right. Like, they understood that the reason that this person has to show up is because even though she does not want to be in that room, she does need to be seen. Now, maybe not by Krista in that moment when your grief is raw and you grieve in solitude, but maybe if your friend had said, you know, I'm just sitting in the living room. Yeah. I'm here with a cup of tea if you, when you're ready to come out yeah. and given you the space to do what you need to do in there and then been a kind of loving presence like, we're right around you. Can I give you, like, let me give you one more because I see Ellen here. Do you know that there are angels in this community? This is a segue. Can, can I share this? Who have called Ellen every single Friday for four years because Ellen's beautiful son knew that Fridays would be hard for Ellen. And they never told me this because they didn't, I don't know, maybe they didn't want me to do what I'm doing right now. So I'm sorry, friends. But literally, Todd and Sharon called Ellen every single week, and I think still do, because they knew that that would be a hard day. That's that's like, that's witness, right? That doesn't necessarily mean getting in the house and being like, I'm here, let me snuggle you. But it means like, I'm here. And the constancy, the consistency, the love, the relentlessness of that gesture of love, and believe me, through the course of the development of that relationship, because they weren't best friends before this happened, now, so many times, Ellen has been has offered them back exactly the love and the strength that they need in their hardest moments too. That's bearing witness, right? I'm just here. And by the way, when we said Mourner's Cottage twice tonight, did you ever notice a men, a men, a men, a men, a men? Like we say it over and over and over. Why don't we just say a men once when a mourner stands up and says, "My heart is broken." A men, it's over. But we don't. We say it again and again and again and again because it's building this muscle memory inside of us that you don't show up once. You don't make one phone call after somebody tells you that they're hurting. You follow up. You check in because sometimes during Shiva, there are 100 people around. But then 10 days later, it's silent, right? It's the storm before the calm. And so this is built, like these rituals, and this is why I just love, our tradition is so rich with this. The rituals are teaching us how to be the kind of human beings we actually want to be in the world, right? They're teaching us what we need in our darkest moments when we don't even know how to ask for it. And, and And the tradition just says, okay, so just show up and we'll do the rest for you. We'll be here again and again and again. Every single Friday, we're here for you just so that you know that you can count on something in this world. So bear witness, I'm not lisping, it's bear witness, is the seventh chapter. The eighth chapter, the sixth chapter is really amazing. Oh, but you're gonna love the fifth chapter. Wait, no, we gotta the, talk about the sixth. But the sixth chapter six. really <laughs> was important for me because it, it's called Heal the Healers, right? Yeah, yeah. Because, um, you know, if you're not the person who's going through the heartbreak, you might be the person who's caretaking. And how do we not absorb in the way that you were saying, we think that tragedy is contagious. In a way, 
it's not that it's contagious in a way it can get, you know, do you want to talk about the 160th thing? Like the way you, when you take someone's pain, you can't take, you can't take all their pain, but over and over and over again, you might start to, why don't you talk about it? So I don't think I ever shared this story out loud. So, um, but it's in the book, so you're all going to know it as soon as you read it anyway. But, um, but when I, so thank you to our beloved board that get granted uh, me a sabbatical and granted our entire staff a sabbatical and this most wonderful sabbatical policy so, it, so that I wouldn't carry the guilt of feeling, you know, like it's not fair that I got, but it's really every, per, every staff member that's at ECAR for seven years gets a sabbatical and my, um, I was the first uh, one to have it and I got on the plane First, I got COVID for a week, like the day that my sabbatical started. And then a week later, I got on a plane and, um, and I flew down to Costa Rica and to start the sabbatical. And I got there and just had, I just found out that we sold the book and now I had to write the book. And I sat down in this beautiful mountain retreat in Costa Rica and I was alone, and I never go anywhere alone because, you know, we have, a, we have a tiny house that's full of people, like everywhere, every inch of this house is full of, full of humans. Thank God. I love that. I was alone. And I open up the computer, and I'm like, how do you write a book? I don't know how to write a book. I know how to write a sermon. <laughs> and I just started to, I just started to, like, see these images of my cousins, Liz and Nancy, who um, I've spoken about here before, but Lizzie had... I spoke about Lizzie at Kol Nidre one year because she, we thought she was going to die on Yom Kippur. She had uh, a colon cancer, and it was terrible, and she was so close to death. And I write about her in the, in the book, but I started imagining Lizzie. And then literally 18 months after Lizzie died, her sister Nancy got diagnosed with a different cancer, and then she died. And, but Nancy hadn't died yet, and I got down to Costa Rica, and I was just so deep in like thinking about my beautiful cousins and our family, and I just started to write and write and write about these memories that I had about them from childhood, and, and then I got the call that Nancy had just died. And I mean, literally, I had just gotten there, and I was so upset, and I was alone, like didn't know a soul, and all of a sudden, I felt this shooting pain come down my arm, my right arm. And I was like, that's weird. What happened? Did I pull my neck? So, you know, like it was super strange. And the pain just intensified. And it was, it got really, really bad. And then like, and it was a Friday and it be, like, it, it was afternoon. And then like Adam and Eve on the first day, like the sun started to set and I was freaking out because I thought, oh my God, like it's Shabbos. I'm on, I'm on a mountain in Costa Rica. I don't know anybody. I can't use my phone in a few minutes. Like, what do I do? And I cannot move my right side at all. And I was crying and crying. And I'm, I went back to the room. I like could, couldn't change my clothes to like get dressed for dinner. And I finally like just went to the dinner. It's a tiny retreat. Everybody eats together. And somebody said, can she sit with me? And she sat down and she said, um, and I, I was weeping and weeping. And I said to her, I'm so sorry. Like, I, I just have to ask you, do you know if there's a doctor here? And she said, well, I'm a healer. What do you need? And I'm like, a healer? <laughs> I'm like, what kind of healer? 
And, <laughs> and she like wouldn't specify what kind of healer. And literally I'm like, I have no options. I'm going to this healer. And so um, I told Those her- Those are the best healers, by the, the way. By the way, yes, as the story will, will attest. Um, she said, so come tomorrow morning and I'll do a treatment. And I'm like, okay, I'm lit like, I literally have no choice. So I went back to my room, didn't eat, was up all night screaming in a cabin in, on a mountain in Costa Rica. So I, like screaming in pain. And then I drag myself out of bed the next morning and I go to this woman healer, treat, treatment, whatever. And she literally, she knows nothing about me. We've never met before. We only had a 10 minute dinner together before I ran out in pain. And she literally touched my arm for a second. And she said, this is grief. Who died? And I'm like, were you eavesdropping on my phone conversation with my family from my room in a cabin in, a, in Costa Rica? Anyway, and I said my, and, um, and actually, the, I mean, I didn't put this in the book because it sounds too weird, but I'm just telling you, just my closest friends. She said, um, your right side is your patrilineal side. Who died in your father's family? So I said, my, my cousin just died yesterday uh, afternoon. And she said, oh, this is, this is grief. This isn't a pulled muscle. This is grief that's living in your body. Do you, can, I touch, can I touch your arm? So I said, yes. So she, this is a long story, sorry. <laughs> so she puts her hands on my arm and she said, I'm so sorry, honey, but this is not grief from one person. She said, this is years and years and years of grief. She said, what do you do for a living? And I said, I, well, I'm a rabbi. And she's like, I don't know what that is. <laughs> so I'm like, it's kind of like a priest or a pastor, but Jewish. And she said, oh, you bury people. She said, if you ever wondered where the grief lives, it's right here on your right side. <laughs> and so um, she worked on my arm for two hours and then I was okay. And I mean, it was, the, it was really like the strangest story. And I told David, and he's like, you can never tell this story. And I'm like, cut to two years later, my book is out. And I'm telling literally everyone <laughs> in the world who gets to chapter whatever this is, six, seven. I'm telling everyone this story. Six. Um, six, thank yeah. you. <laughs> thank you, Michaela. Um, but, but literally, this woman healed me. Like she, and I was trying to understand what happened there. And I do think I've lear subsequently learned that grief does live in the body's tissue. And that, as my sister Deb says, if you don't metabolize grief, the grief will metastasize in your body. Grief does not go away on its own. And we have to actually take care of ourselves and let the grief work through our bodies. Otherwise, it lives there. And so, as Michaela points out, for people who either by profession or by nature are always walking this direction to the right and circling around and taking care of people and helping people. Like you're not a hero if you don't take care of yourself. You're gonna freeze one day or die or you know, or, or something else that's terrible because there's all kinds of literature now about vicarious trauma and secondary trauma and hopelessness and despair and, and addiction and suicidality and all the things that happens to really good people who are really strong and resilient but take too much into their bodies. And so how do we get out of it? We let other people heal us sometimes too. And that is like very, very hard for the people who are always bringing the lasagnas and always making the meal trains and always answering the phone call when the need comes in. But if we don't take care of ourselves, this will destroy us, right? So yeah. that's chapter six. That's chapter six. Okay, I think that 
How, I don't know how much time we have, but yeah. So, so chapter eight. <laughs> okay, we have to talk about chapter eight. Chapter, chapter eight is very, very relevant to our time, and it, it, oh gosh, it just, it just set off a lot of bells for me because it's about how do you talk to people and see people who don't who share uh, oppositional worldview to you. And how daunting that is now in this time, particularly. And I have a lot of questions. Um, pick, I don't pick one. Pick one. Okay. So we don't lose everyone. <laughs> Does anybody have a question about chapter eight? Okay. So, so just to be clear, like the the setup for chapter eight is what happens when the person that's coming toward you is not a broken-hearted person um, who's sick or who's bereaved, but is actually somebody who's done something to cause harm to you and to the community in word or in action, which is the second example of the kind of people um, that we'll turn to. And let me just do a quick time check for you. I know it's getting late. So I think if we talk for another five minutes or so and then do a little closing ritual, does that work for folks? Okay. Because I really don't want you to fall asleep to, to uh, Michaela. She'll be very sad if you do. <laughs> okay. Won't be the first time. <laughs> I think it would be the first time. <laughs> Mm. So, so, okay, uh, um, let's just do this. You know what? Chapter 8 is really amazing. Just read the book. I think that this is what we should do. I, I think we should just play a little game for the very end here. Okay. Yeah? Okay. Okay. So, <clears throat> um, give me a number between 1 and <laughs> 100. I'm an improviser, so this is fun for me and not fun for Sharon, which is also fun for me. So uh, between one and, oh, everybody's like, who is she? Why is she interviewing Sharon? I'm not a therapist or any, I just play them on TV. So, okay, between one and 180, let's say. 68, 168. I'm gonna say something to Sharon and then you're just gonna, you're just going to go. This hasn't happened in any of the other book talks. Okay. I just want you to know. <laughs> okay. Ooh, 168, the rabbi. Oh, my gosh. Well, this is totally relevant to what you were just trying to lead us to anyway, so it's perfect. Okay, I'm just going to do this quickly so that we can all go to sleep. Um, so <laughs> so I, some of you know I had this cra I had kind of a crazy experience um, Several years ago, just before COVID, I was invited by the president of the state of Israel to come to Israel, Ruby, Ruby Rivlin at the time, to engage in this conversation with a small group of Jews from Israel and from the diaspora about the state of the Jewish world and what we had in common, if anything. And the answer really was, we don't have anything in common. Like, we could not find one thing that we all had in common. Okay, not to, not to you know, jump to the end. But anyway, um, then he asked if, um, a, a couple of us could could speak before him and just share what the what the Jewish world looked like from our perspective. And I was invited to be the representative of American Jewry, to to the great dismay of many of my fans in this community and beyond, I'm sure. And so I just decided to be honest, and I told him what I saw going on in our community, and I talked about the beauties. Uh, about the beauty and the miracles and the wonder of our beautiful Jew world Jewish community and the state of Israel. And I talked about the danger 
that I saw about especially fundamentalism and messianism and a lot of what I said on Yom Kippur, you know, start like this past year, um, started in that, in that short speech that I gave. And I talked about the danger of this ultra-nationalist, messianic, violent Jewish religious extremism that I was terrified was going to destroy the state of Israel and the Jewish people. So people weren't that happy about my speech. But I was honest, and he asked, so I felt like I had to be, I had to tell him the truth. And, um, and there, one of the rabbis who was invited to be part of this delegation is one of the leaders of the ultra-Orthodox settler movement. He built a settlement, um, a very well-known settlement. And he came right over to me when this speech ended, and he just started berating me. And he was so angry, and he said, what you said are lies. You're propagandizing against the state of Israel. You're propagandizing against the Jewish people. This is libelous. There is no such thing as Jewish religious extremism. And, I, and he was yelling at me, and I felt like my skin was burning, and I, like I felt the fight or flight thing. And then all of a sudden, he said, he said, you, he said, I'm not just angry at you. I'm hurt by what you said. Your words hurt me. And as soon as he said that, I just, there was like a shift in his demeanor and a shift in me. And I just said to him, do you want to get lunch? And, and he said, yes. And we, you guys know that, some of you know this story because I shared this at Icar a couple of years ago. And so he, we were like up in the tent upstairs, COVID, post-COVID, quasi. And so anyway, we sat down with him and his wife, and we had lunch for almost three hours together. And people were literally swarming around us at the La Rome Hotel, like taking in Jerusalem, taking pictures of like, I can't believe he's with her. So anyway, as I share in the book, literally every single thing he said made me angry. I mean, I disagreed with every view he held. He disagreed with every view I held. It was absolutely terrifying to see how two Jews who hold the same sacred text and come from the same shared history, I mean, even our families are from the same part of Europe, could see the world in such fundamentally different ways. It was absolutely terrifying. As I say in the book, like other than the sweet kugel, there was literally nothing that we had in common. And my hands were like this afterwards. And I took, I like James Comey did. I took notes on every word that we said. So I would remember absolutely everything afterwards. And that was the end of the story. Then COVID came and there's all this, you know, human mess. And then a couple years later, there, there, there was this, um, there was this, this event on Tisha B'Av, the saddest day of the year, when Jews come and go up to the Western Wall to pray. And there were protesters who were bussed in from the settlement so that they could throw feces and rocks and chairs at the women who were praying at the wall because it was, a, you know, it was uh, desanctifying the, um, the, the, you know, the holy space. And this rabbi stood up and he was like, what are you doing? What to his, to like his community, essentially, what are you doing? He said, he said, if people come to this place and they want to pray, you hand them a sidur, a prayer book. You don't throw something at them. He said, we, we, the religious people of this state must do something to stop violent religious extremism. It's going to destroy us. So people are freaking out and they're like, what happened? He's like the leader of the movement. And then all of a sudden he's not, okay. And so one, the only reason I know about this is because 
one of his advisors said, oh, because he had lunch with Sharon Browse a couple of years ago. And so I got the story on a Google alert. And I was like, what? But I, okay, I don't think it was just me because I know of a couple other amazing rabbis who also he was willing to sit down with at some point. And he did, and he, he was already open enough to even be in the room with us. And I'm not going to take the credit for it. But what I do realize is that sometimes if we hold curiosity with people who are coming toward us or against us, who we ha see hold totally different worldviews, but we're able to stay at the table. Hannah Roth, where are you? But we're, where are you? Hannah's the star of chapter eight, really. But we're able to stay at the table. We may be able to stay long enough that we can plant a seed that could grow in to something absolutely beautiful in time. And we may never know about it. Like if I had, if there wasn't for Google alerts, I would not know that this had happened. And so can we find a time when in this most binary, contentious, cruel, divisive moment, can we possibly find a way to see each other with wonder and ask Malach, what does the world look like from your perspective? Because it's not what I'm seeing from over here. Instead of counter protesting and trying to find better rhymes than their rhymes, I mean, come on. Like, can we see each other as human beings? Can we meet sorrow with sorrow? Can we meet love with love? Can we understand that this is an absolutely horrific, terrible, devastating human experience that we're all bearing witness to right now and so many people are dying and it's just terrible? Can we find our way to each other in the shared acknowledgement of the human tragedy that's unfolding? I, we can, and yes, we can. But I have to ask one quick question because this is what was burning on my brain when I read this, and this is the best way to end. And I'm so sorry to like undercut this beautiful, you know, anthem at the end here. But how do you know when? you need to cease with curiosity and just say, I've, I've been curious enough and I've hit the wall so many times with this person. How, when do you know and how, how do you know when you haven't, because I'm sure there's a part of your head that's like, no, put yourself out there one more time and get punched in the face. Yeah. Just one more time, maybe this will permeate the exterior walls, but how, like, what is the right amount? I'll, okay, I'm going to say this super quickly so that we can close. As long, on the condition that I'm allowed to give a sermon about this at some point in the near future, because there's a lot more to say here and a lot more of a conversation to have about this. This work is not for everybody. This work, I mean, if, if we learn one thing from the anti-racism movement, it is not on the impacted community to teach the privileged community how to not be racist, right? Like, it's, the, on the, it's on the part of the privileged community to learn how to not be racist. But if we can, if we have the ability to get back in the arena, to actually sit with curiosity, if we can be safe sitting across the table from someone who literally jeopardizes our, our, you know, our, our well-being and, and threatens our dignity, if we can be safe doing it, and if we have the emotional bandwidth to do it, and if we are far enough away from the trauma, grief, and fear that will that, that really prevent us from building bridges, right? That's, you don't build bridges in trauma, grief and, grief, and fear. You take care of your own broken heart until you're able to sort of take a step out and walk around the block after Shiva ends. So if you can, you should. And if you can't anymore because you've just been 
battered by the internet or by your, you know, crazy uncle or by, you know, your, your, your ex-friend, then like you don't, but, but some of us can. Some of us actually can step in and step forward and say, I'm just gonna sit here and have lunch with you and it's gonna make my hands shake, but it's okay because maybe, maybe there's a seed that's being planted. Right. And, and I think we should probably wrap there, but I wanna do one um, exercise to close if I can. So first of all, a huge thank you to you, Michaela, for being, <laughs> for being my friend. Oh, you're very nice. For reading my book and knowing the chapters better okay. than I do. Let me tell you more about my cat, though. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and and what you know what I'm going to ask you to do, which is like this is literally at um, people have requested this, and I've been fantasizing about this for a while, so we're just going to do it. So I'm going to ask you if you're getting ready to leave, and you're like, I'm going to sneak out as soon as this happens. Don't leave. Just just like let's just do this together. Let's just do it. It's just a, like it's just going to take literally like four minutes of your time, and then you can go home and come back in a couple hours for shachri. So, I want to do this. Like I want to invite us to get up and to circle around the perimeter of this room, and I'm going to ask that. Thank you. Oh, are you getting up to leave or to circle? You're going to. Stacy's going to circle. Thank you, honey. <laughs> Thank you. And here's how we're going to do it. Okay. I'm just going to invite us that if you're feeling okay tonight, like you've got some strength in you and, and, you're, and you're able to be in the caregiver arena, I'm just going to ask you to turn this way and to start to walk around the perimeter that way. And if you're a mourner like I am, if you're struggling with illness, or if someone you love is, or if you're just feeling like really bereft right now and you don't have an ounce of strength or hope in you, I'm just gonna ask you to circle this way. And what I'm gonna ask, and this is like really something I could probably only ask of our own community, is that when you see somebody who's going in the opposite direction and you're coming this way, to just stop for a minute and make eye contact and say, malach, if you forget the Hebrew words, you can just say, tell me about your heart. Tell me what happened to you. And if you're going this way, to just trust for a moment that you will be held with love. And so be honest about where your hurt is. You don't have to go into the whole story. Okay, you can do like the short version. And then the people going this way are going to have to give a blessing. And the thing is, as Michaela and I were discussing this earlier today, we realized that I shared that I actually think that this ritual is about radical democratization of our tradition because the people who are broken don't get blessed by the Kohanim, by the high priests and the rabbis. They get blessed by each other. Like we bless each other. And the way that we do that is we think about what does this person need right now? And then we ask God or the community or whatever force of nature is out there in the world to just, may you be blessed with love. May you be surrounded by community. May the memory of your son always be a blessing, et cetera, et cetera. And I would like to ask that not one person in this room who's going this way is greeted by no one, okay? We're not gonna be greeted by everyone, but that everybody who's going this way is greeted by at least someone, okay? Can we try this? Thank you, thank you. All right, so let's do this walk, and then I wish you all a Shabbat Shalom. <laughs>